If you look at the mainstream news today, one gets the distinct impression that the planet is headed for a cataclysmic environmental shift driven by the Earth's changing climate. What you will not hear, however, is that this shift may very well come from cooling of the planet by reduced solar activity and not the warming that most climate alarmists are warning of due to anthropogenic or man-made emissions of greenhouse gases. In Twilight of Abundance, scientist David Archibald reviews the evidence over the last several thousand years and comes to the conclusion that our current age is an interglacial one, which, if historical patterns hold true, will revert to a period of glaciation and cooling that will bring catastrophic down pressure on Earth's carrying capacity for life as the sun goes into a period of lower radiative activity. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hockey. It's been time to get Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are talking about the very controversial pseudo or scientific, depending on your point of view, uh, issue of climate change. And the book that was instrumental in helping me formulate some of my thoughts around this topic was uh, written by a Australian uh, by the name of David Archibald. The book's title is Twilight of Abundance. And in short, the the book talks about, historically speaking, not just forget, forget mankind for a second, because if you think about the, the length of time humans have been on this earth, we haven't been around that long. So he, it looks through the scope of the planet's history with regard to all the other elements that affect it, including the sun. And it comes to the rough conclusion that there are some major climatic changes coming that actually are not quite what the powers that be are telling us. But before we get into that, uh, let me introduce my co-hosts. Uh, tonight I'm joined by Hank and Hans. Please say hello. Hi, everyone. Hello. And Hank, you had uh, a couple things you wanted to mention. Oh, um, I'd just like to mention in advance that uh, none of us are contemplating uh, suicide or self-harm of any kind. Right. And... Uh, Oh, I heard we were recently sponsored by a friend. Well, of the I show. wouldn't say sponsored. That has unfortunate legal ramifications, but I will. I will say that this episode is brought to you by Yeti, home of the microphone, the best microphone that a uh, hundred bucks can buy. Mm-hmm. I concur. We all concur. The entire podcast racism industry wouldn't be possible without Yeti. So uh, we want to thank you, Yeti. You've been indispensable. Really mean that. All right. So, well, before we actually dive into the details, uh, what do you guys just generally think about the, the climate change topic? I mean, is this is this a grave concern? Is it a big hoax? Is there something in the middle? Is there something to this, but they're exaggerating things? What do you guys think? It would be freaking fantastic if 
people would, and by people, I mean like proponents of this, would actually appear to take their own predictions seriously. As it stands, it's completely possible that what they describe as happening is actually happening. Like, I can believe that there are feedback loops between the various gases that we're emitting and city blacktop cover and differences in uh, various cropland albedos and everything else that's studied and theoretically incorporated into these models. But as far as I can tell, the only thing that these models are ever used for is to push the Western world to forcibly deindustrialize. That's that's it. Like they the there's no climate scientists. There, there's like a couple, but generally speaking, if you ask these guys about okay, so we're not going to forcibly immiserate half of the planet in order to solve this problem. Let's explore things like geoengineering. They'll they'll say things like, well, we think that that just bypasses the real problem. It's like, well, what is the real problem? I thought the real problem was that the planet was getting hotter. Like, let's solve that problem. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, we really think CO2 emissions. So they they don't take their actual prediction as significant. They take it as a means to an end of this very particular set of policy prescriptions that they've foreordained. And they don't even apply those prescriptions to the people who actually constitute the problem. None of these people, like they, they talk about existential threats and yet none of them seem to advocate that we nuke India or China. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, like the United States has nuked countries before, I guess country before, we were willing to nuke the other one, but events sort of came, uh, made that uh, superfluous. And at that time, that was just, you know, to save a significant amount of deaths, but in no sense to, like, preserve life on the planet. And for the 50 years afterward, we were quite willing to use nuclear weapons in defense of Western Europe or Cuba or any number of things. And yet... Absolutely nobody says, well, you know, in order to cut carbon emissions by 95% or whatever, really the only way that you do that is a war. So let's get popping for that. None of these people take their predictions remotely seriously. They keep buying condos in Malibu and Manhattan. And I find it impossible to believe that there's not an agenda when there's that amount of money and prestige sloshing through these networks. They have completely unified messaging that doesn't address either what they claim the problem is or what they claim the solution should be. One of the, one of the things that I've noticed um, is that a lot of this seems to have started in the United States, really at the end of the 60s, uh, beginning of the 1970s, for some very understandable reasons. Uh, the United States was starting to see a great deal of environmental pollution. Um, CO2 emissions were, uh, obviously, there were smog checks, weren't really much of a thing, so you had 
cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco looked like absolute crap. Um, environmental pollution was on the rise in many of the Midwestern waterways. Um, chemical runoff was a big problem in the Midwest at this point. Several uh, waterways uh, going from like the 1870s onward up till the 1970s had been thoroughly um, emulsified, I would say, in, in a large amount of industrial chemical runoff. Um, the East Coast had several uh, severe storms that created a, you know, some some understandable worry about uh, what it, what exactly is happening to the country. Uh, much of the water has being uh, noted as uh, no longer potable, meaning that you couldn't necessarily just walk up to uh, drinking water or water um, in streams or tributaries or, uh, or lakes uh, or other bodies of water in the United States and just drink out of them normally without uh, some kind of chemical runoff or other problem. So it seems like a great deal of, of this, this climate analysis started around the time when the, the public and the U.S. government, uh, the establishment, were both sort of aligned in thinking um, we might have a real problem here. You know, we, we industrialized very quickly, didn't necessarily understand many of the risks. Uh, as, we, as I kind of noted in our Hoover Dam episode, the, the you know, understanding the risks of chemical interaction with human drinking water was not, not really understood uh, in the early 20th century, and it wasn't really understood until 1974 with the Clean Water Act. Um, so people focused on all of these issues at once. They focused on whether or not environmental pollution. They focused on gas emissions. They focused on, uh, this is when you saw like a lot of the peak oil stuff started to show up uh, and sort of common press and common parlance and government proceedings. Uh, and they focused on climate, obviously. There's, there's, a, there's an interesting part of this, though, in that from the 70s until the 90s, there was this warming cycle in the uh, global oceans. The global oceans go through this cycle where they have um, 20 to 30 year warming periods. This has been going on uh, for as long as we can understand through core samples, through all kinds of um, hydroanalysis, through just every, every kind of measure or scientific uh, uh, discovery we've made kind of points to this general cycle having been just a fundamental part of the planet um, since the arrival of large bodies of water. Uh, and particularly after the continents split up, this problem became, not problem, but uh, phenomena became more pronounced due to the displacement of water, due to water being separated due to different temperature variations, due to the large separation of said water, and the distribution of land masses easily collect lots of ice uh, to the poles. A lot of this has had a real effect in shaping the general cycle of every 20 to 30 years, sometimes 40 years. Uh, the ocean temperatures will rise uh, or they'll cool, and sometimes they'll rise consecutively and they, they might cool. But there is an understanding that will not, it's impossible for them to rise forever just due to a um, solar radiation, due to fluctuations in solar temperature. Uh, B, just due to the amount of water on the planet that will eventually just sit dormant towards the lower parts of the ocean, uh, lower in terms of depth. That water will eventually be cycled back up, the world will cool. We know that uh, cooler water has a massive environmental impact in small quantities on its local environment. Uh, the Soviets destroyed a lot of these like uh, 
small uh, riverways and bodies of water uh, in, in Central Asia, and it permanently altered the climate of certain regions of Uzbekistan, uh, of Kazakhstan, uh, Georgia, because uh, they had permanently removed these bodies of water that had their own sort of climate fluctuation that um, gave very uh, gave kind of slightly warmer winters sometimes and slightly colder summers. It made life somewhat manageable on the steppe. Now life is very is much more difficult in parts of the steppe, um, partially due to the eradication of these, of these bodies of water. Um, so I think that when a lot of this stuff started, there was already a real political and cultural concern about environmental um, caretaking. But we were also seeing the beginnings of a warming period. And these effects happened to coral, uh, or, uh, happen around the same time. And there was a correlation basically made. Uh, probably erroneous, but there was a correlation. Oh, well, um, all of this CO2 we're putting in the air and all this environmental pollution must be having some yet un not yet understood effect on temperature, on global temperature. Obviously, in hindsight, that's very shaky science, but at the time, it was uh, really all they had in terms of real um, climate science. A lot of the climate models were um, honestly military-related. Uh, there was not a great deal of uh, civilian or public, uh, public institutional use of these climate models because no one really thought it was a big deal and no one really thought that you could actually uh, take enough drastic measures uh, from an industrial standpoint to somehow permanently alter the climate, which is basically what this lobby that we're talking about intends, that we are permanently altering the climate, which is uh, a very large claim to make. That we have permanently uh, changed the fluctuations of this planet, which has been around for billions of years. Um, and it, it's in a way, it's almost arrogant. It, it's it's as though the human race in this short amount of time has figured out geoengineering, basically, which is silly because we, we obviously very much haven't. And uh, all of the most recent science, obviously, in get this points to uh, some kind of cooling period. Uh, the last ten years, in particular, although they've been noting this the last fifteen years, the winters. In Europe, in Asia, in North America, and even in South America, have absolutely brutal. And they've been getting worse and worse and worse. And despite um, small fluctuations in summer periods, which are actually, we know from some of the climate record, normal in cooling period, to have very humid, very warm, uh, but short summer periods marked by increasingly harsh winters, is consistent with. Um, either a mini ice age model or at least just a general cooling model that uh, is, is, is found in more of a micro analysis of climate data. One of the big problems, and I think we'll also get into this, is that much of the uh, public, publicly talked about climate analysis is done on a very macro scale. It's using thousand year block time that sort of removes um, a lot of historical analysis from the record, it doesn't necessarily take, um, uh, you know, hundred-year-long or fifty-year-long or, or you know, forty-five-year-long environmental phenomena, um, volcanoes exploding, um, glaciers moving southward for some unexplicable reason, 
that will have real effects on huge um, areas of climate. A lot of that's been removed from the analysis, and it becomes this sort of general picture with very, very loose confidence intervals of, well, we think the trend has been going this way, so we assume that it's just going to keep forming. That's basically the model in itself. Because we've and, seen that warmth, it broke perpetually. And one of the, like, the primary input to this system, that which is the sun, it's only been extremely recently that we've had direct data sets of solar output. Everything else is inferential based on the climate itself. So you can't just like predict one of the uh, inputs by inference because that depends on the model itself. And over the last 20 years or so, that's the only solar output data that we have. And I mean, it's only been in the last, uh, I think this is like a month old or so, um, that we've gotten recent, uh, decent, okay for prediction, uh, uh, sort of validation of what uh, the uh, the solar cycle on kind of a short and long term is uh, predicted to be. Right. And this is this is the, you know, it's it's worthwhile whenever you look at this science literature, like don't just read the the write up in like whatever your uh, your rag of choice is. Like just ignore it if it doesn't have a link to the original. The paper is oscillations of the baseline of solar magnetic field and solar irradiance on a millennial time scale by Zarkova, Shepard, Zarkov, and Popova. Yeah, there, there's they, a Russian woman who came out with this a few months ago. I don't know if that's the same person, but uh, I believe it is. Okay. And it was just the it was just the the write up in uh, it's in Nature. It's a pretty uh, fairly prestigious publication. Well, he, here's something that I, I and correct me if I'm wrong, but here's my understanding from basically what what I've read. Um, there are these sunspot cycles that we've started to slowly quantify over the last 30 years, maybe even less time than that. We've really tried to understand solar activity. Uh, and there's a, there's a, a dearth of data uh, to begin with on this activity. For a long time, solar, uh, solar modeling was basically done without collecting data or they didn't even understand <laughs> what kind of data to collect. They had no way of measuring solar output on a quantitative level. But now that they think that sunspots generally run, um, and these are sort of flares and solar activity, sunspots of flare and solar activity and solar radiation that generates an immense amount of heat. And obviously that'll impact climate. The sun is giving off um, additional amounts or bursts of heat, obviously, that'll impact the planet. So uh, these things run in generally 11-year cycles. Uh, sometimes they go longer, sometimes they're 200-year cycles. Whatever. The last, uh, uh, the number of sunspots in the last 11-year cycle declined incredibly. Like it just, it basically fell to the floor. Um, and then that was after basically a plateau for the last 20 years prior to that, first started understanding data. So the sunspot activity was slowing down uh, towards the end of that uh, warming cycle, we noted in the 70s to the 90s. Uh, and then there's been a dramatic 
decrease in the amount of sunspots. Uh, and in the current cycle that we're seeing now, we're still assuming 11 or approximately per cycle, uh, uh, there basically are no more sunspots. Sunspots are becoming incredibly rare. Uh, and again, this is not necessarily cause for concern from what little we actually understand about our sun. This is uh, a fairly normal thing. Sun, uh, again, has been around much longer than this planet. It's gone through all kinds of fluctuations we probably couldn't even explain. And we know that sunspots uh, not only have an effect on everything from just heat, daily heat, to telecommunications, to uh, you know, all kinds of aspects of our modern life, uh, all kinds of electronics could be affected by a bad enough sunspot. So we understand these things do happen. We've spent Everyone from the military to private scientist groups have spent a ton of time trying to understand them. But what we do know is that they not only have an immense impact, or they can have an immense impact, but you run in cycles. And what we also know now is that that cycle has been has seen a dramatic uh, fall in, the, in that sunspot activity. That means that the sun is basically giving off, in this current cycle, less heat than it used to. Again, from what we think we understand from core samples and glacier analysis of the, la the previous ice ages, this is consistent with how ice ages happen. And again, not to say that we are going into an ice age or that we're going into a mini ice age, but this is very consistent with cooling periods of all kinds, lower solar activity. Not only are, is there some kind of an end to uh, one of these ocean cycles, ocean temperature cycles, which is probably very much correlated to solar activity because generally how that water even heats up to begin with is energy from the sun. Uh, it's not necessarily energy from our planet's core that'll heat that water. It is very much solar energy that will heat the surface of the water, which obviously has a big impact on the global climate. Uh, now that we can understand that these sunspots are decreasing, doesn't that necessarily meet, correlate with the worsening winters we've seen, uh, you know, ice becoming nearly impassable again in parts of the Arctic, uh, Antar you know, several stations in the Antarctic becoming uh, basically locked down because you know, the storms were getting too bad, they had to get back, pull out. Uh, doesn't this slowly start to speak to maybe, you know, if one year, okay, it's a flu, things happen. Several years in a row, it's a pattern, over a decade now, very bad and worsening uh, it's becoming apparent, I think, that the planet is slowly cooling, or at least there is some kind of weather fluctuation going on that is probably not explained by CO2 emissions. Uh, Boy, it'd be great if we had a group of people that was available to study these sorts of dynamics and complex systems and could provide sort of an objective analysis about comparative factors Right. So one of the interesting things is that, and this is from The Economist, uh, actually, of all places, which has been a climate, climate science rag for a long time, but they, they noted that from 2000 to 2010, the world added 100 billion tons, allegedly, this is, and again, I don't necessarily believe these figures, but 100 billion tons of carbon, which seems insane. Uh, it doesn't even seem possible to disperse that many tons of carbon to the atmosphere without some severe impact to just daily sight and, and daily breathing. Um, uh, 
but they did, they do mention that there was basically no ocean warming during that period. What we are noticing is increasing oceanic acidity in certain areas. That's maybe partially a CO2 phenomenon, but again, we're missing the forest through the trees here. We're focusing on heat fluctuations, basically, instead of worrying about very, very real issues that are caused by something very different, which is just pure environmental pollution, chemical runoff from East Asia that has destroyed huge spots of um, the Pacific Ocean just due to raw oceanic acidity. Well, that's, that's, that's is, certainly true, but one of the yeah. contentions about the book is that even though it generally disagrees with the, uh, and we can also talk about what about the scientific quote-unquote consensus that keeps being thrown in our faces, I don't know who these people are, honestly. Uh, I'm sure if you looked up their backgrounds, you might find some correlations with their politics as well. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, those people are arguing that the uh, not the country the, the the planet the climate is is warming uh, and the contention of the book is that that's that's actually going to reverse itself uh, if these uh, solar cycles progress as they have uh, for uh, many millennia as uh, a lot of research has indicated uh, but the, the the author is actually appreciative that all of this energy was thrown at this particular question of climate change because it brought up a lot of people who are maybe actually more scientific than some of the, the quote-unquote scientists that are actually on television telling you about these things to actually question these things and look into it further. And that drove the investigation to actually reveal some of the things that we've been just talking about. One of the researchers that the book cites uh, is a Norwegian researcher by the name of Jan Erik Solheim, and he found a correlation between the solar cycle and the planet's temperature. Uh, there are um, also uh, interglacial periods that have happened, uh, and there's enough evidence to indicate that when those, uh, when those cycle, the planet goes through warming and cooling periods. And they happen about every 10,000 years in the current interglacial period between ice ages, in other words. If the pattern of the past uh, three of the four that have happened that we have records for or can find some kind of uh, geological or archaeological evidence to indicate that these did happen before at least four times. The three out of the four times uh, that it happened, they ended about 10,000 years. And so we're actually getting up to that period very soon, according to the archaeological, geological records. And so basically, um, the first point was, it's good that we've actually looked into this. It turns out that actually the real problem is not so much CO2, but the fact that the sun is uh, changing. Uh, and then when it does, uh, the planet is going to go into another ice age. And then the book talks about the implications for that. But uh, I just wanted to point out that it's, uh, it's not just pollution. It is the climate. And, and as we know, uh, there used to be huge uh, woolly mammoths in North America. There used to be the opposite of that, dinosaurs when the planet was much warmer, and humans were not really a factor. I mean, the, the total world population back in those two periods, well, obviously the dinosaurs, the humans did not exist, you know, if you're not taking a biblical interpretation Implying. of history. But if you take a look at the sort of archaeological evidence, uh, 
and the bone records. There's there's no humans until much later. Uh, and then the the ice ages, there may have been humans, but the population at that time was under a billion, probably under 100 million. Uh, so whatever CO2 humans were making with their campfires, it was just, it was just not an issue that, that caused the earth to warm. The earth warmed without that, and th- that ice age ended. And so obviously the earth has cycled many times before the industrialization of the planet. And so to say that it is, it is be- just because of industrialization is obviously wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that industrialization hasn't moved the needle, but a lot of people who are skeptical of this stuff are saying it's it's really not that big of a move. And even if it is, uh, there are other forces that we actually need to take into account, uh, especially the, of, the sun. The, the amount of volcanoes that they've attributed to various cooling periods just in the last couple thousand years alone, which in the, in the vast his, history of both the planet and presence of large bodies of water and breathable air on the planet is a speck of time. It's not, it's barely a second of time. You know, like it was, ba- you know, in the, in the scheme of time of this planet, there were woolly mammoths probably close to where I'm sitting right now, basically 10 seconds ago. The, the drastic changes in relatively short amounts of cosmic time that we've seen on this planet, it's, it's overall time in it and topology is immense. So the, the notion that anything is permanent, I think it, it is super dubious. And one of the common arguments that gets thrown against a lot of these climate models is basically, well, in order to... Uh, successfully test and verify aspects of the model. You have to run tests. You have to actually create environments where you can run that model, where you can actually change environmental factors, where you can then use field data to determine your confidence intervals and so on. Well, that really hasn't been done. And instead of investing the time and money into creating isolated atmospheric environments, which I think could be done, I'm not necessarily an expert, but I feel as though it wouldn't be too difficult to accomplish it. Not even in a very micro environment, you could probably fill an entire, uh, I don't know, underground reservoir or something uh, and seal it off from the outside world and, and alter, you know, CO2 fluctuations, things like that, and determine, you know, emulate something close to solar radiation. There's a hundred things you could do that I think that are very possible. That just simply haven't been done, and I think that part of it speaks to a real laziness um, and a real misunderstanding as well of how you would actually how these environmental factors actually work. Well, some we, some of that may be laziness, but also some of it is there is an active, and this is what the WikiLeaks climate gate uh, revelations revealed. There is an active political bullying campaign against anyone who voices objections to the quote unquote consensus. Uh, that's what the you know people the, the the two things that came out uh, from that WikiLeaks release, uh, and this was from the University of East Anglia, I believe, uh, in talking about their work with the uh, intergovernmental uh, climate uh, committee, that was basically saying you know we we can't have this person uh, work with us anymore because of their views. There was a lot of that commentary in these emails that were released, and they were also uh, and I have to I have to find the quote, but basically it was saying. You know, well, the fact is that we can't account for the lack of warming at the moment uh, is a travesty. 
They're basically Wait saying their whole thesis is wrong, and they're 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 expressing their frustration over their inability to find the data to back it up. And well, so they get yeah, they get ahead. called out like every year, every other year on some major fuck up. I think it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC that you're talking about. Yeah. Or this, right. uh, and, uh, and first of all, there's a hundred of these groups. They're led by the UN, they're led by private companies, they're led by nonprofits, they're led by national governments. But they all, they all have the same message. They all name themselves something similar. So don't, you know, if you ever run across one in reading or real life, don't worry about remembering their name because they're all the same. They all employ the same people and just evolving. Um, but one of the things they actually had to admit, they, they released a report in 2013, because enough scientists um, uh, criticized several of their uh, reports preceding this report in 2013 and basically said, well, something very, very fundamental to know of long-term um, climate models is basic meteorology. And basic meteorology is essentially the study of cloud formations. Well, it, it turned out the IPCC had never even factored clouds and elements of basic meteorology into their models and had to admit to them, had to admit that they left out basic meteorology from a climate model, a macro scale climate. They didn't, in their model, clouds had never, never existed on this planet. Storms have never existed on this planet. You know, real weather effects have never existed and, ha and thus have had never and never had any long term effect. We know that hurricanes uh, can create, you know, or tsunamis and hurricanes can create massive floods that can change hundreds and hundreds of miles of topology in a week. And that can have an immense effect on the local climate to that area and climate as a whole to a macro scale. That never has existed in these models up to a certain point. And it's still debatable whether it exists now. There are very basic things that could have gone into this analysis that they've, cho uh, that they, that they've made a concerted effort to either not do or leave out. So the big question from that whole climate gate drama was, what exactly, and this has still never been fully revealed, uh, what exactly is deemed irrelevant? What exactly is, is, is never even uh, investigated? And what is the methodology behind it? Those three questions have never been answered by a lot of bodies. Uh, instead, the, the often retorted line, or the often given line is, well, 97% of scientists agree. That's, I mean, people have debunked that statistic all kinds of ways, but it does speak to a lack of real response. Well, 97% of people said something. More doctors smoke camels than any other I brand. Mean, yeah. How many examples do I have to give you of, of some percentage of, of some high degree of percentage of scientific or professional whatever saying something that we know the historical record was not true? If you had asked 97%, uh, and this would have been a small field of theoretical and nuclear physicists in 1932, if the weaponization of uranium and plutonium was possible in a controlled environment, 
overwhelmingly they would have said no. And we know they would have said no because the overwhelming majority of American and British and other scientists and other physicists who were in these fields were useless when it came down to time to actually make this weapon. They had to recruit these people from parts of the world and some uh, some lone wolves from the American and, and British scientific establishments who did believe in this, who actually make this Majority of the scientists at the time thought it possible, but never it couldn't work. There were so many factors that just couldn't believe in. Uh, and the same thing with this sort of this climate change nonsense is that, well, ninety-seven percent of scientists have peer-reviewed it. Is really what they should be saying. How does peer review really work? I mean, most scientists, and we know from we know now that peer review and and, and uh, the replication crisis is growing amongst the scientific establishment. We know uh, several documented cases have come out the last couple of years of people basically being invented, people that don't exist, basic peer reviewing, um, or, or pseudonyms being used to peer review uh, scientific papers, often for grant money or for private money, which is a whole other issue. But we know that this is, a, this is an ever-present problem. How, how do we explain that that's not a Has anyone investigated the actual people that have peer-reviewed these models, have peer-reviewed these papers, and has that statistic. They've been saying that number for, I don't know, 15 years now. Has anyone changed? They've put out a lot of papers since then. Over that time period, how many papers and, and white papers and analyses have been put out by the climate change lobby? Hundreds, thousands? Is it still 97% across the board? A lot of these questions are, I don't think, ever asked but by anyone of prominence, but are never bothered to be explored. Um, because as Hank has said before, this is very much about a political agenda. Uh, and I think that the climate gate emails um, basically make that clear. This is, this is more about uh, educating the rubes and saving the planet than it is about understanding climate phenomena. Uh, in North America, in Europe, and, and the world at large. One of the things you mentioned earlier, Hans, was in the 70s, they were getting concerned about environmental degradation. And there was also uh, one of the things we talked about several times, uh, one with Borzoi uh, and a few other times uh, in several shows, where we were talking about resource constraints and resource depletion, where we're worried about running out of oil in particular, but also other natural resources that are finite and they're not renewable. Uh, so what happened in the 70s in particular was the Club of Rome got together and they created this World 3 model where it was basically talking about the potential for uh, collapse in the future because of resource depletion. And uh, John Michael Greer actually at a, at a conference some time ago actually mentioned this uh, book and groups uh, books and also some of their less well-known conclusions after the initial book came out, uh, the uh, limits to growth. Uh, their much less popular solutions to this was actually calling for a governmental, uh, international government agency to administer the entire planet's consumption of resources and growth of population. That That's much always the solution. It yeah, doesn't matter what the problem is. It can always be solved by, <laughs> like, putting the 
putting the benevolent scientists in charge. Right. And it was a technocratic solution, much like communism or some of the stuff we've been talking about recently with the New World Order. And after the end of the Soviet Union, the sort of major challenger to the West, uh, one of the conspiracy theories, if you want to call it that, is that the push for managing the world can be done very indirectly, but also very cleverly by saying that the climate, the atmosphere, basically, which affects everyone on every surface of the earth, needs to be regulated. And if you think about the implications for that and how they've been pushing and pushing and pushing this stuff uh, and what agencies are pushing it, the UN, you know, the United Nations, uh, groups like that, and typically groups that are left of center that typically like larger government, you can see how they have an incentive and a motive for pushing this stuff. And that's, that's one of the concerns, the political concerns, people who don't buy into this uh, are worried about is that it's, it's basically a, a backdoor way to world government. And when we say one world government, I mean, this, this really reflects the desires of the same group of transnational elites that already effectively constitutes by any realistic description of that term, a world government. If you look at the elites of some random country and you start picking out all the guys who went to Harvard or Yale or Columbia or the Kennedy school or whatever, and they're all part of the same consensus that amounts to people like us should really be in charge of the economy in all quotes, because of course the economy is the thing that is the most important for, uh, for us to manage and uh, sues into our own ends when we're not actually serving the economy all in caps again. That should tell you that this is not a analysis that's taken in isolation. We talk about control of the academy um, for sort of uh, ideological purposes constantly. Like this is a consistent uh, thing that basically everybody on the left and the right agrees on that there's been a clique that has absorbed control of these major educational institutions. There's an entire industrial grant complex that is primarily government money funding these people through a grant process that's very incestuously administered by the same crowd of people who graduated from a lot of the same schools. And honestly, it seems like this has gone completely off the rails. And regardless of whether there are people that are trying to do a good job, the complexity of the problem just does not admit good climate models. Like, in my opinion, like, it's just facially absurd that you can have something where you're trying to predict almost a single output. I mean, it's it's not quite a single output because you can have average temperatures in different parts of the globe. You can have particular weather station readings. But given the amount of inputs 
you have a massive, massive degrees of freedom problem where especially once you take into account the fact that you have these very nonlinear feedback loops, I I just don't see how you can have like a principled statistical model that could predict these things with enough fidelity. And I know that in a machine learning context, you can have very unprincipled models that you use things like extreme amounts of regularization, just all of the BS that people do in their day to day and like it can actually work. But if you demand an actual model where there's a process involved and you have this nice diagram of this feeds into this and this feeds into this and these are inputs when you run it through the machine, we feed the machine back on itself and see what happens over the course of 100, 200, 300 years. I, I just don't see how that's possible given the relative amount of predictors and outputs. Thinking about... Um... When the financial crisis, uh, the last one hit, uh, obviously Europe decided to go under this this much politicized term austerity, uh, and th there were several um, American academics, uh, financial academics, who were involved in the, sort of the advising to European governments and private investment banks uh, regarding you know, regarding how to, how to structure restructure the economy for this these austerity measures, and people ended up. I'll have to look up. Uh, the study and the people who did it. Um, one of them was in the documentary Inside Job. He was actually like, interviewed as some kind of a witness or a guy who could give insight in the financial crisis, uh, which is ironic given that what was found like a year later <laughs> was that he had multiple Excel errors in his model. And basically, after first of all, he managed to just blow off the fact that he released uh, all of this documentation. Uh, regarding uh, his modeling to everyone to view, and he had all these. He had multiple Excel errors. He had very like elementary school stuff, circular errors, and you know uh, calculations that weren't representing the right cells. People found that it ended up complete, not completely changing the overall view of the model, but definitely had a, a, a real noticeable impact. And this analysis had. Massive implications. This analysis was taken very seriously by the central bank, by European national governments, by uh, large investment institutions inside of Europe and the United States who were, who were doing business in Europe. It was taken seriously by Italian insurance companies. This analysis factored into a, a new uh, uh, continental economic strategy to deal with the financial crisis. And it was full of, of problems. No one even bothered to check. It was some. It was like some group of like left wing uh, college types who, who went through the model and found that it was full of errors and, and very basic mistakes that had never been double checked. You know, one of the one of the most recent papers to come out, and I mentioned earlier that I I don't believe the numbers that they're giving on CO two emissions. Uh, in totality. But there was a study uh, published by two authors, uh, Nick Lewis and Judith Curry. Uh, I think uh, they had additional help from climatologists in the United States and the UK. And they uh, basically determined that, uh, that, that the planet is, and this corresponds with 
theories regarding you know, the, the basic correlation made, well, we had all these CO2 emissions and not for warming, and that sort of corresponded with solar activity going down and ocean temperatures, ocean temperature fluctuations uh, entering a cooling cycle. But they noticed that CO2 emissions just generally don't have much of an impact on uh, on the climate as a whole or the planet as a whole, and that's basically because the greenhouse gas effect, which is a term that was, I think, popularized in the 90s and became like a part of every child's like elementary school uh, science textbook uh, not long afterwards, um, is, is effectively bullshit. The greenhouse gas effect does not have a, a huge amount of effect on long-term planet climate. And it's, it's not a very strong phenomenon, meaning that it doesn't necessarily preserve as much CO2 emissions as we initially said. Now, what happens to those CO2 emissions is anyone's guess, and it makes me feel as though, again, uh, we're mismeasuring how much CO2 we're actually putting out. Uh, they've found multiple investigations into these climatology papers uh, published by this, this pro-climate change crowd, I guess you could call them, uh, is that they, they have used very, very inaccurate weather station data. Uh, and this is part of the climate gate uh, debacle, was that they knew that they had potentially bad data, and they basically ignored it. And they overcorrected on top of that. They, they not only uh, ignored the fact and didn't disclose the fact that much of this data was unreliable um, from you know out-of-date or, or weather stations or just using uh, technology or methodologies that weren't fully tested or couldn't, couldn't be successfully tested in a controlled environment. But they decided to, to double down and basically create fake data to add on to it and give it a higher confidence of full well-knowing that it was uh, it was effectively bullshit because it could fuel their argument, fuel the argument that, oh, well, uh, clearly, clearly the heat, there's so much temperature rise. I mean, all these weather stations have told us you wouldn't dispute a weather station, would you? That's its job is to collect weather data. Um, but we know that most of these weather stations are, again, outdated, uh, are using technology that's just not reliable. And much of the technology and, uh, institutions utilized to analyze CO2 emissions have the same problem. Outdated, not reliable, methodology changes every couple of years because it's done in exact science, mostly because we cannot do it in a very controlled environment with real multivariate analysis. All these problems keep coming up again and again in these sort of experiments, and they keep having to be pointed out. That uh, in, in this particular study, they estimate that we were off by uh, thirty to forty-five percent in our uh, in the 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 ninety-seven percent agreed upon CO two emissions were off by at least thirty, if not forty-five. And that's just one study. There could be ten more studies that come out over the next couple of years into this issue that might park it at eighty. We've been off by eighty percent. Maybe it has no effect. Maybe it has no long-term effect. No one really knows what happens to all these CO2 emissions then if, if they're not necessarily being collected, sort of stored within our atmosphere, which is the initial assumption. Uh, where are these CO2 emissions if there is 100 billion tons that are released uh, frequently into the atmosphere? Where is that going? No one can answer that question. What exactly happens to these CO2 emissions? How does these, do these gaseous product, 
byproducts break down. Again, never really been researched, not fully understood. Uh, and it's just sort of accepted as a common credence that the air is constantly full and, and increasingly full of CO2 emissions that just don't go anywhere. They're just going to sit there forever. And this whole thing kind of poses another question. Well, if, if, you know, if there's so much CO2 already and it's a compounding problem, what's the point of anything? Because it's, it basically amounts to this very nihilistic worldview that, that we've already destroyed ourselves, so we might as well not try, I think is what I would take from it if I actually believed it. What's the point of trying to correct climate models by getting everyone to drive a Prius? If so much CO2 has been released already, and then apparently, according to these models, it is a compounding, by, compounding phenomenon that will increasingly trap more and more heat, which will continue to heat the planet, which will exert more heat. They basically uh, regard climate heat, heat within the Earth's climate, as a exponentially growing issue, which is... I'm I'm very skeptical of that argument. Yeah. I mean, the, the, they call it like the runaway Venus problem, the runaway greenhouse effect, and you become a Venus where the surface temperature is like 900 degrees. You know how long that would take? Well, we're also much further away from the sun than Venus, and it's, yeah. it's just a different planet. Um, we have a huge ocean. Venus does not, as far as I know. Uh, well, the, yeah, the biggest thing about Venus is that there's no water on Venus. Yeah. The, I mean, you could argue it was boiled off, but basically it's it's not going to run away like, you know, on Venus. And yeah. um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that you can have uh, feedback loops that don't necessarily result in literally unbounded increases, but nonetheless, it stabilizes or at least reaches a level uh, before it stabilizes that is not... Uh, compatible with you know inhabiting uh the earth close to the equator or uh you know is otherwise sort of disastrous in some manner for human health i can i can actually believe that uh i don't think anyone is actually saying that it's a actively good idea to be pumping the volume of stuff that we are into the atmosphere I don't think that we can be confident of the effects of doing that. I do know what the effects are, though, of going with the policy prescriptions of these people. And in my view, if you have a very concrete negative payoff versus a entirely hypothetical and, I believe, extremely tenuous uh, mitigation of that negative consequence. The it's not just about the climate model, because the climate model has to feed back into economic models that tell you if you immiserate an entire country, if you shut off all the electricity in Nigeria. Is that going to be like good for the environment? No, it's going to be terrible because people are going to be burning whatever scraps of wood they have over cook fires. They're going to have huge population exoduses. 
they're going to have their infrastructure that allows them to maintain the level of sanitation that they currently subsist on completely destroyed, it's going to be an ecological disaster. And the same thing applies to more or less every economic system that's linked in with the quote-unquote carbon economy. All of those production facilities for renewable energy require really dense sources of power, that it's not actually clear that a 100% renewable economy could actually uh, support. It's not clear that you can use solar panels and wind turbines to build solar panels and wind turbines at scale. That's an open question. And there's also the possibility that you're going to shoot yourself in the foot by depriving yourself of dense sources of very transportable, high-flux energy sources, where it's really easy to move a tanker full of gasoline from one place to another. Moving the equivalent amount of batteries is almost impossible to do. So if you don't have access to these dense, high-flux uh, energy sources, what does that do to your ability to actually develop things like cleaner technologies or more power efficient, uh, more power efficient CPUs, things like that? Yeah, and, and or even can... like direct carbon scrubbing. If you believe that carbon in the atmosphere is the actual problem, presumably you're going to need to run some really huge carbon scrubbing plants mm -hmm. if the alternative is we just convince everybody to immiserate themselves. Yeah, what, what I want to say about this, Hank, is that these are great questions and observations and just genuine thoughts. I mean, and we're not even claiming that we have like some grand solution here, but you never hear any of this talked about. I mean, it's always, it's just one simple solution. We have to cut back. We have to regulate you. We have to immiserate you, basically. And you never have any nuance. You never have any good proposals put forward that people debate in a in an honest way, scientific way, just with a, a shared goal of like not wrecking the planet or wrecking society and making people miserable and and unhappy. It's it's really it's never discussed. And I think that's what you're getting at earlier a little bit is that it's it's just this very simplistic uh, drumbeat. And I think that's mainly for propaganda reasons because it's it's given out to the mass audience and talking they don't, points. yeah and they don't expect you to actually ask these questions and if you do you're sort of treated like you're a heretic and well, it's they, they, ridiculous there's, whole, like, there's whole left-wing journalist outfits i'm thinking of like mother jones that has a climate deniers list i mean they basically <laughs> maintain a list of people that have even testified in front of congress about these things uh, that they're climate what it climate denier I I also do not believe that outdoors has a temperature right I mean and the funny thing we're talking about the solutions that they often offer the solutions that they often offer are quizzical uh, they're either I think that they're either very stupid or that it's very malicious and it's one or the other it can't be both and it can't be anything else. Like, um, the common, uh, one of the commonly suggested solutions is, oh, well, all these farm animals and all this meat that you white people like to eat, 
uh, all the methane from the, the lamb and the oh yeah, if they want us to eat bugs, have you seen the, that one yeah, going around? All the all 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 the methane from the goats, the pigs, and the cows, and the horses, and chickens. Well, you know that's creating this methane buildup. Uh, okay, whatever. Um, I, I don't really. Again, they use this similar model, like that. There's going to be this runaway feedback loop of methane. Uh, which is a naturally occurring yeah, no 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 shit. I mean, how many yeah. animals, how many dinosaurs, how many you know, without humans, how many wildlife would be in existence? I, I mean, over hundreds of millions of years. I mean, again, it's like okay, we're now 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 we're going to become Venus because why we we invented the internal combustion engine. It just yeah, the odds never, are just so time. ridiculous. Like what? Come on, now? Like now it's going to happen? I. We, we've Honestly, life has been on this earth for so long when it, the earth was in danger of becoming venus it was <laughs> during the last wipeout of dinosaurs from and we, and again we don't actually know a lot about this period despite the theories of the meteor and the volcanoes and whatever uh that none of it's ever been fully proven uh it's just there are great theories and there's some idea that at least that some of this stuff might have happened but what we do know from just a, a core sample analysis of the period is that the planet was at like serious risk of becoming sort of uh, a hazard zone due to this like huge release of um, chemicals or naturally occurring chemicals and, and smoke and all kinds of gaseous emissions from all kinds of sources. No one's even really clear what. Um, planet was at risk of basically becoming Venus because you would think that there's this feedback. Fill up the planet with enough of materials, the atmosphere becomes dense, heat keeps getting preserved until it fries the oceans and boils everything away and ever all life is dead. Okay, well that didn't happen. And it wasn't too long later in the vast uh, speck of time that we can an analyze from that period we had multiple ice ages. We had multiple periods of immense plant growth. That's based, those periods after when the planet was basically becoming Venus, all of the forests of North America and Europe grew after that period. All it's really easy if you ask these people, how do you actually institute a negative feedback loop? Correct. What would cause that? Their yeah. eyes literally bug out of their heads. That's just, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. We're supposed to talk about the yeah. positive feedback. I mean, I've get been excited been for the next reading, feedback. Uh, recently that, uh, and I mean, a child could tell you this. I mean, if you, if a child at least understands what photosynthesis is, it's basically the, the, the transformation of atmospheric carbon dioxide by plants or algae, uh, anything that can sort of do pho photosynthesis uh, into oxygen water uh and sugar molecules that the the plant needs to uh to provide energy for itself and it sucks carbon out of the out of the atmosphere uh specifically co2 not just carbon but you know that's a shorthand for for when they, they mean that but it's it's the more complex molecule and they are um they're basically saying that if you planted trees or if you allowed the forest to grow, which actually CO2 encourages, and they've noticed the uh, the northern forests actually growing more because of the higher concentrations of CO2, it'll actually 
sort of stabilize things. And you can encourage this with economic policy. There actually are policies now that uh, China is sort of notorious for cheating on, but there are these things called carbon offsets, which basically, if you're a manufacturing company, for example, and you have to emit a lot of uh, emissions in your manufacturing process, if you're a steel mill or a a cement factory, that's probably the best example because they're very energy intensive. They emit a lot of uh, CO2 and other things. Uh, You could buy offsets around the world and whoever wants to do it uh, will basically it's sort of like a reverse auction. They'll, they'll offer to do it at a lower and lower price. And so it encourages people to be efficient and whatnot. So China has been uh, very eager to do that. And they basically plant trees. Now they're notorious for cheating, but nonetheless, that idea exists. And it seems to be accepted by some people that that would be a negative feedback loop. And it's, it's not like this is impossible stuff. I mean, it's, you can, you can still have your industrial economy and just plant some trees. And, and there are other more, uh, sophisticated approaches that do take a lot more energy but there there are systems for taking co2 out of the atmosphere and and converting it into kind of like a solid product or a liquid or something like that uh, that actually can be stored or sequestered underground there, there are people working on this and that's not like uh, you know we want to stop it per se but it's i don't think it's like a impossible problem uh, and eventually i'd like to talk about some of the sort of projections the book makes because again the book is really talking about the opposite of what the scientific uh consensus quote-unquote is pushing they're they're the yeah book... let's, let's talk about that yeah i mean it's a very interesting set of uh hypotheses yeah it's it's predicated on the fact that again the interglacial period which is what we're in over the past forty thousand plus years there have been about four of them and they three of them end after about 10,000 years, which is basically what we're coming up on. And it's using the, again, the assumption that the sun has been driving this, but there is evidence to show that as well. Uh, We are going to get a whole lot colder. And instead of worrying about putting too much CO2 into the atmosphere, we're going to have the opposite problem where we don't put enough into it because we want to have enough plant life to feed ourselves. That's the main contention of the book is that basically the agricultural regions of the world are going to be really hard hit. Uh, The Northern areas, the temperate zones are going to basically move to the equator. And that is basically going to shrink the, the arable land on the planet down. So imagine the the entire Canadian farming industry is going to basically vanish overnight right exactly but that's that's just a small example just imagine the ice caps expanding to the equator both ways okay see your your livable region just shrank down by a whole lot and you're talking about like half the world is not going to have enough food and in particular the regions that don't have uh agricultural technology culture uh and just climate for it obviously are, are going to be hardest hit Uh, The United States, since it's such a big country and there is that technology and culture there, it's probably going to be relatively okay. Canada, as you just mentioned, is probably going to be screwed if this does happen. Uh, And the Middle East in particular, because they have such a huge population that depends on imported food, it it may turn out that they could grow a little bit more because of the, uh, the cooling that's going to happen in this hypothesis. 
but they still have just the, the overburden of the population that they've been growing uh, because of the, the exports of oil. And in theory, that could continue. But if you really think about it, the countries that suddenly are exporting food now and then they're suddenly not able to grow as much, well, they're going to, yeah, maybe they could keep selling it to the Middle East or actually maybe not starve to death and just prioritize keeping it at home. So the exports go away. And so basically those parts of the world where they, they're heavily dependent on food imports are projected to be the hardest hit. Uh, and so that's that's the main sort of alarm bell. And then the other thing is the uh, the energy question about, you know, forget like worrying about putting too much CO2 into the atmosphere. The oil uh, resource depletion issue that we've talked about many times is still, you know, not going to change depending on the climate. It's just it's in the ground or it's not. It has nothing to do with the sun. And so, or at least over, you know, our sort of lifetime. I mean, long term, yes, it's it's derived from, uh, plant and animal life, but uh, in this sort of scenario where things do get colder, there's going to be less life producing less oil, uh, and it wouldn't even matter at that time scale anyway because we're worried about sort of the next hundred years or so, and so next to no oil is is generated in that small of a time frame. So you're going to keep running out of oil, and because you have higher uh, warming uh, requirements, heating requirements for just you know surviving, you're going to run that down even harder, and then then what do you do? I mean, you can't, you can't move trucks as much anymore. So you have to start looking for alternative energies. And if the sun is not as bright, well, solar doesn't work. Right. And I don't think wind has the capacity to really pick up enough, uh, unless you built, uh, I think the United States, it's funny if you wanted to run forgetting, you know, any fluctuation in the climate whatsoever right now, if you just wanted to convert everything over to wind, I think you have to fill up the entire state of North Dakota with windmills. So think about how much energy you would have to require to build all that infrastructure. And then if you're just shivering to death, uh, are you really going to have the energy to spare for that sort of thing? So this is a big problem. And so really the book's final sort of uh, suggestion, if, if we're serious about this, is nuclear power. And if you don't like the fission reactors, uh, the book is a very strong proponent of the thorium uh, reactor approach, which basically uses, can use in the United States, a uh, the spent fuel that we have actually not reprocessed for uh, a decision made back in the Ford administration not to reprocess it because it was worried that it might get into the hands of weapon makers. But there's basically a lot of plutonium sitting around that you can actually convert into uh, a, a usable form. And then you can... Uh, use thorium, which is a liquid uh, in the in the in these types of reactors. It's it's kind of using thorium to generate the heat, and then it uses a liquid salt uh, somehow to actually cool the entire reactor. And then if there's a meltdown, and this is the main pitch of it, and there, there's no commercial uh, version of this available, by the way. So this this is all hypothetical. But if if this was finished and figured out, this this would offer a very compelling alternative to. Uh, our current nuclear reactors, which basically are controlled by uh, the splitting of uranium uh, and into more, uh, more. I think it's. I think that they get heavier, if, that's, if I'm not mistaken, uh, isotopes of plutonium, and then that waste product is basically just. It never goes away in in our lifetimes. Like seven thousand years later, you have to basically. Uh, expected to have half the amount of radiation, but it's still super deadly. The thorium version, uh, if it melts down, if there's a big catastrophic problem, as opposed to our current technology, the because of the liquid that it's used to cool, all of that 
uh, all of that stuff will basically dump into a, a casket underneath the reactor. And the melting down, quote unquote, won't release all of this steam, which was what happened in Chernobyl. Uh, all of it will basically drop into the ground and it won't actually release into the environment, which is the basic pitch of the whole reactor. But it, again, it doesn't work. But if it if it could be figured out commercially, it's a very safe alternative in theory. And that's basically the, the end of the book. It's basically saying, look, if you've got a, a, a climate and a planet that is going into an ice age with all these people, you're basically screwed if you expect to use current technology or... If you uh, come up with something better, well, you better get on it. But if you don't, you're going to lose a lot of people. So that's the that's sort of like final alarm uh, that the book is raising. And so instead, again, of like worrying about the climate warming, well, at least maybe not silence the people that are worried about it cooling. Okay, you can have both people in my book. All right, I, I'm I'm appreciative of anybody who does real science and real hard work on trying to identify truth. But if you silence one group just because you don't like them for political reasons, I mean, you're you potentially putting the entire you know, human race at risk. Forget about you know, ethnicity for a moment. Just think about just the planet and the fact that we all live here. I mean, this is very dangerous stuff to silence truth-seeking when you really think about what could possibly happen. Does the book give a rough estimate when uh, we can expect to start seeing sort of the beginnings of this drastic it, it does and i'm personally i'm very skeptical of you know the, this this time frame because i think it's too soon i don't think things change that quickly but it, it says something like you know, like 30 years or something like that which i think is somewhat hard to believe but yeah it's it's saying it's it's coming soon well i think that just allegorically if the next decade of european winters continues to worsen um to the point where people are dying in larger and larger numbers every every winter in Europe again, which was uh, something that was thought to have been uh, solved as early as the 60s. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that, that that'll be a pretty good indicator of, uh, of something very clearly changing. You know, also, all of those predictions of the Arctic becoming like this super highway if those begin to falter, there's a real uh, end to this meme of the Arctic basically melting. We're going to have all kinds of new national shipping routes. That's all going to go back to like slow-moving icebreakers trying to just chart a path uh, for not even commercial purposes, but just realist or not or, uh, for military purposes or research purposes. That'll be another good indicator that uh, clearly something has shifted. Now we're seeing uh, return of, of basically glacial bodies. That's basically, you know, at the, at the end of the day, when you're talking about ice ages, you're talking about large glaciers. You're talking about glaciers, thousand, you know, huge masses of ice that are a mile, a mile high and, and several miles, hundreds of miles across. And, yeah, exert so much pressure on the ground below them that they literally push ground slowly deeper into the mantle and, and you know, carve out huge valleys and permanently alter landscapes. 
Well, Antarctica itself is uh, one of the most fascinating continents on the planet. I mean, forget, you know, the fact that it's, uh, it's sort of off limits to going there and all the sort of conspiracy theories ensue because of that. But just imagine, you know, if you believe in a, a round earth theory, of course, if you just look at the, the satellite footage of what Antarctica is, it's basically a giant ice sheet. And yeah. the the importance of its location was actually pointed out in this book, which I had never known before, which which fascinated me. If you go back to the time of the dinosaurs, and if you believe in the theory of tectonic drift, where basically all the continents were bunched up into, I think it was called Guandana Land or something like that. Oh, it Pangea was, or some stupid. There's name. many names for it, but basically, the the entire Earth was either land or ocean and it was all one or the other there was no like breakups or islands or anything like that basically our continents today are giant islands but everything together was was smushed back then it was smushed together and antarctica was was part of that it was basically uh stuck somewhere between uh australia and africa or something like that and eventually it broke away as the the earth's uh internal nuclear reactor which is basically a, a there's a lot of nuclear material right underneath the uh uh, the crust, which is where we live, uh, and that's what all that that hot magma is coming from. It's basically just uh, the breakdown, radioactive decay of all the elements beneath the, uh, the the cool surface. All of that stuff is generating enormous amounts of heat, generating the volcanoes and the pressure and the upwelling that is basically forcing the the continents to move around. Uh, and so, when Antarctica moved to where where it is, where it's sort of kind of isolated from the sun, it got really cold. And it started snowing. And basically over the millennia, uh, or the eons, I should say, the millions of years, basically that, that snow basically started packing and packing and packing and packing. And now we have something like 3,000 meters thick of ice. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you could drill it, but it's, it's just so deep, it's hard to fathom. And you just look to your left and your right, and you see nothing but white. But that, that color, that white, and everybody knows this. If you go to the desert or if you're trying to stay cool, you put on something white. You don't wear black. And the fact that it's, uh, it's, it's water and it's, it's frozen, so it's, it's ice, is it has a very special property. As opposed to the ocean, which surrounds it, ocean uh, only reflects about 5% of the heat energy that the sun emits to it. And so basically 95% of it is, is used for warming the earth. Okay, that, that's just the physical property of, of the ocean. But switch right over to the, the frozen part of Antarctica and all of that ice actually reflects 95% um, of the heat energy. And so you've got, um, you've got a giant reflector that is cooling the earth. And so just, just understand the importance of all this stuff as it works together and how, how the climate has changed dramatically based on these things. Uh, it, it can change, but it, I really do think it takes a long time. I don't think it happens in such a short time frame that even this book is talking about. Uh, but they, it, it did open my eyes to understanding these very long-running processes that can have very tremendous effects over time. And it is, again, it has nothing to do with humanity. Not to say that we don't have any impact, but in terms of the, the scale and the magnitude, I think we're much lower on that list. Well, the, there's a basic logic that even a, a child could, could see through. Uh, and that, okay, so during periods of, of cooling, we know that there's larger bodies of ice, in this case, often glaciers. That means more reflection of solar energy, which means lower global temperature. 
obviously we know that there have been many, many, many cycles in the history of this planet that have oscillated, particularly as the continents started to break up that theory. Um, there have been so many cycles wherein large amounts of solar energy were reflected because the planet gradually cooled and there was an actual noticeable compounding effect. The funny thing about a lot of these climate models is that you don't mention a very, very obvious example of a compounding global interconnected climate model, and that's basically cooling periods. Cooling periods do have a compounding uh, and sort of exponential growth in their behavior in that, okay, more cooling leads to more cooling, which leads to more cooling and just sort of grows from there until eventually over time, the oceanic cycles start to warm up more. The ocean will, you know, that, that warm water will start to sit more in the top. It'll slowly melt away glaciers as the glaciers slowly start to melt away as the position of the planet changes over time, you know, throughout the end of the year. Okay, slowly the glaciers recede, and then obviously there's less reflective material, which means more solar radiation is absorbed by the, uh, and solar heat is absorbed by the Earth's oceans, and the cycle repeats itself. Glaciers go down, plant life goes up, areas that were once sort of uninhabitable become habitable. It's basically the entirety of Scandinavia is a good example of an area that 6,000 years ago was, even, even as early as 6,000 years ago, uh, was basically uninhabitable and has only been inhabited more, uh, more recently. And, and even 400 years ago, we had something called the Little, little Ice Age. That, that's yeah. very well documented. Very yeah. well documented, and there was also um, there was a volcano that happened, I think about 150, 170 years ago. Whenever Frankenstein yeah. came out, because basically that book was inspired by what happened in in Switzerland and uh, southern Germany, because the the climate got so cold that people starved to death and people were eating rats, and that inspired the story of Frankenstein and. Again, that was just a sort of earthly phenomenon, nothing to do with the uh, industry at the time. And so this stuff uh, you know, is not that far back in, in history. You can see cooling periods had a dramatic effect. Yeah, so I, I, I really do question the, a huge amount of these predictions. I think that you know, I, could, I could keep going with multiple examples of failed experiments, you know, attempts at replication that have failed, multiple studies showing uh, that many of the predictions using uh, real-life weather patterns after the predictions were released have shown them to be wildly inaccurate, often uh, off by as, as many as a, like a two standard deviations. Like it, it's, it's a real shit show. This entire industry that's been created to basically manufacture uh, a real, um, a real reason in their minds to alter the daily life of everyone for environmental purposes, and it, and it really, truly, the worst thing about it actually is that it completely misses the forest of the trees on real environmental problems that I don't think are actually part of us can be rectified by a cycle. There is a massive amount of trash, literally trash sitting in our oceans a global cooling cycle will not rectify that there is a massive amount of environmental uh, environmental destruction and wildlife um 
deaths that have occurred more recently that I think may, might be somewhat attributed to naturally fluctuating climates, but have certainly been caused by humans. One of the weirdest solutions that's been offered by these people to getting rid of, of our cow dependency is to eat insects. Insect population, a new study has shown that it's the insect population of the planet has plummeted 20% in the last 10 years. And so what is the plan now? We're going to further destroy the ecosystem. So even if the global, the global cooling and warming cycle sort of rectify our current problems, there will be no, no ecological system for us to build. Well, I, a, I, I think the plan is to start growing them uh, and then selling them at the grocery store. So we're all going to be eating uh, bugs, basically. Um, Hank, uh, and I think we should wrap up uh, shortly, but uh, Hank, did you want to mention our favorite uh, science science man on television? <sighs> Bill Nye took what was sort of an anodyne, you know, vaguely fuzzy. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy, you know, from the television when I was eight. <laughs> he took that reputation and he liquidated it for no apparent reason not for any appreciable amount of money like he's not a young guy what does he need the money for he had enough before he you know made money from appearances and writing books and consulting and everything else but that was insufficient and so he decided to take that reputation and sort of light it on fire and use the flames to kind of, you know, heat his own balls a little bit and make himself into this this sort of bought and paid for fake TV moral authority whose primary concerns are, I guess global warming with like, you know, sort of unspecified contours, but, you know, extremely specified uh, prescriptions and weird Netflix fake children's shows about sex junk. Oh God. I remember that. Wow. It's, it's one of the more disturbing bits of TV that I've, I've ever seen. And uh, that should almost be its own show. It's like when you uh, when you feel the need to, because it's basically a remake, right? It's like it's not limited to uh, whatever you know movie du jour uh, is being remade. It's also you have to dig up these personalities of yesteryear and pervert them towards whatever whatever your current bugaboo is. And it's it's really disturbing when you see stuff like this. They they can't leave well enough alone. And that guy particularly, nobody held a gun to his head. He couldn't leave well enough alone. So now his reputation is, you know, very uh it's it's limited in appeal uh to the sort of person who thinks that pelvic thrusts while talking about your sex junk on what purports to be a children's TV science show is a good idea. Well what 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 motivates the the psychology of these people? Not necessarily the average person that kind of buys into it and makes fun of conservatives for not believing in climate or whatever. 
what motivates the average like uh, you know scientist or engineer who really gets into this and becomes an engine in the propaganda machine for it? It's an interesting problem. It's it's an interesting problem where you get to work with a lot of uh, interesting data and models and stuff. Your work is taken seriously, whereas for 95% of scientists, it, they're completely anonymous. They work on things that either explaining why they matter is an incredible effort or it just frankly does not matter. It's something that gets you a certain amount of real-life prestige and cachet on top of the obvious professional benefits where suddenly if you're some random political scientist, it's like, oh, you're writing about stuff that may or may not matter. But if you're a political scientist and ah, you have a global warming angle because we have to deal with all of these climate refugees and climate conflicts and etc., then suddenly you have access to a whole new wellspring of resources. So, I mean, there's there's concrete reasons why people go in for this sort of stuff as their professional field. And some people, honestly, at this point, the propaganda has been going on for long enough and there are enough true believers that there are people who legitimately have convinced themselves that this is an area where they can make a difference in all caps uh, and, uh, you know, go go and be a professional you know, a, a poorly, uh, a poor fidelity meteorologist, basically. Stay frosty out there. Thank you.